Welcome to IAQ Radio, the voice of the indoor air quality industry. Yes, the rules have changed. have changed hey welcome back to indoor air quality radio back from our summer vacation good day wherever you're listening from and welcome to indoor air quality radio friday september 17th 2010 this week episode 179 comes to you from studio b in beautiful Coriopolis, pennsylvania my name is joe hughes or radio joe and here with me back in the studio is the z-man Cliff hey Slotnick. joe the question what happened to summer where did it go <laughs> i'll tell you it was quick it's gone uh, we also have, of course, returning this week, the intrepid environmental Annie and Koalecki. Good afternoon, all. At the controls. Thanks, Annie. Today's segments include the microband trivia question, an interview with Mr. Ernie Storr, the president of Injected Dry Systems and Bales Restoration DKI. We'll have our halftime, we'll go back to our interview, and then we'll do the roundup as always. We've been updating and adding a blog to the IAQ Radio website each week. Check out Cliff's blog after the show at iaqradio.com. Before we get started, let's thank our marquee sponsors. Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IAQ industry. Subscriptions and advertising information are available at ieconnections.com. Dry Ease Products, providing equipment for drying water-damaged homes and buildings. Dry Ease is first in drying solutions at dri-eaz.com. John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop at johndon, j-o-n-d-o-n.com. Cleaning and clean, clean facts and cleaning and maintenance management magazine. Your source for cleaning and maintenance news. Visit them at cleanfacts.com and cmmonline.com. Be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IEQ Radio when you inquire about their products and services. All right. Most people know how to contact us by now, so you just uh, click on that iaqradio.com. Either follow the show that says go to the show or, of course, you can uh, go directly from our show announcement. If you'd like to get a show announcement, just email me at joe.hughes, at, that's H-U-G-H-E-S, at iaqtraining.com. Last but not least, let's uh, thank the IAQ Training Institute, and please visit the IAQ Training Institute website for the most current dates for the training you trust at iaqtraining.com. Let's turn it over to the Z-Man for today's microband trivia question. Thanks, Joe. Win a cool prize by outcompeting fellow IQ Radio listeners and being the first person to correctly answer the trivia question each week. Submitting your answer is easy. Email it to czlotnick at cs.com 
or if you're listening to the show, you can just go ahead and text your answer into the computer. Ladies first, congratulations to Patty Harmon at Restoration Industry Association and Tim Campbell of Gibsonton, Florida, for identifying revolutionary patriot Thomas Paine as the answer to August 20th's trivia question. Now for the microband trivia question for Friday, September 17th, 2010. Psychrometrics, or psychrometry, are terms used to describe the field of engineering concerned with the determination of physical and thermodynamic properties of gas vapor mixtures. The term derives from the Greek, sukron, meaning cold, and metron, meaning a means of measurement. Name the person credited with pioneering the psychrometric chart in 1904. All right. Excellent one today, Cliff. Let me uh, have you do the honors. I know you and Ernie go way back, so if you don't mind introducing today's guest. Oh, sure. It's a pleasure. He's a friend. Uh, Ernie is an inventor, a highly successful uh, restorer. He's a graduate of the University of Puget Sound with a degree in business administration and an emphasis on marketing. He spent two years in the U.S. Army. He was trained as a medic, but instead pounded an IBM Selectric typewriter in administration. He spent four years in the family grocery business before getting into restoration in the manufacturing fields, the last fields he's going to be in before he goes out to pasture. Uh, he's assisted in the business by family members. He has held or holds most IICRC certifications and has served in the past on the IICRC S500 water damage standard committees and was an editor of the standards. Now he is president of Injected Dry Systems and Bales Restoration DKI located in Linwood, Washington. How about his intro music, Annie? Here. In the middle of imagination, right in the middle of my head, I close my eyes, and my room's not my room, and my bed isn't really my bed. I look inside and discover things that are sometimes strange and new, and the most remarkable Thoughts, I think, have a way of being true. Okay, let's make sure we've got you back on the line. Ernie, are you there? Ernie? Oh, well, he got muted. Well, let's unmute Ernie. There we go. Are you back, Ernie? I'm back. All right. Okay, good. Welcome. Good. Thanks for joining us. We had a little glitch there for a moment. We thought we lost you, but, but you're back. But he's back. All right. Welcome. I'm here. <laughs> All right. Okay. Cliff, why don't you start things off for us today? Okay, I will. Hang on a second, Joe. Let me find my questions. Okay. Well, we know what you did prior to entering the disaster restoration field. I guess the question is, why did you get into the field of disaster restoration, Ernie? Well, um, disasteration, uh, disaster restoration. I entered the cleaning business, of course, which was a natural uh, uh, tie-in with disaster restoration. One of our major clients that we had in our in our cleaning business, we had a valet business that uh, took care of the needs of the guests at a hotel. And this major hotel, located about a quarter of a mile away, was Red Lion Motor Inn, and. Uh, we did, you know, we washed their pair of shorts for more than you'd have to pay for them. But it was it was something we did on a daily basis, and we were around a lot. 
And one day they asked me about cleaning their carpets, and, and I saw some of their problems that were that they were having. And uh, another $10,000 investment later, and we were cleaning their carpets. And naturally, hotels have uh, bathtubs that overflow, guests which get intoxicated, and, and uh, stink bombs of butyric acid get thrown by local Nazi groups and such. Uh, we had that situation in out of northwest Idaho. Sorry, northwest Idaho people. Uh, but sooner or later, they're, they're going to have roof leaks, and, and really we got into it because of those few things. The carpet cleaning led us into the uh, the stink bomb cleanup with a double O, if I recall right, Cliff. Mm-hmm. And, and then roof leaks. They, they had a contractor who came in and, and repaired the roof, and Boy, did they have leaks. They must have had 30, 40 leaks. And we went around the place with, at the time, uh, Lloyd Weaver air movers and um, Lloyd Weaver dehumidifiers. And we were in the water damage business. Uh, We had this miracle stick that we carried with us, and it would tell us if there was water in the carpet. And and we essentially essentially dried just carpets and pads. As you know, that there wasn't much in the way of them. technology back in the late 70s, uh, at least that we were aware of. And that's how we did it. That's how we got started into it, because, uh, well, because it was there. And uh, we were reasonably successful with it. And, of course, we you know that we probably left a lot of mold behind vinyl wallpaper, because hotels tend to have a lot of that. But uh, that was it. That's how we got into it, because the business was there and handed to us on a platter. So you were, this was in the uh, mid-late 70s? Yes, it was. Okay. Yes. And now, yeah. who were some of your um, biggest influences during, and we're looking at, what, uh, 35 years now, I guess, that you've been doing this. Who have been some of the biggest influences during your career? Well, several. Uh, of course, getting me originally interested in the cleaning business was, um, Mr. Hughes, Bob Hughes of Kemspec, got me interested in it, and uh, we really learned a lot from Bob, and he's a fine gentleman. We're, just, we're sorry he's gone out of the industry. but uh, Then the next two influences, and um, let's see, hey, Joe, you're sitting next to, uh, to Cliff. Yes, sir. Watch carefully, watch carefully to see his chest doesn't puff up too big or stand <laughs> and break buttons on his shirt or that his head doesn't swell so much that his glasses don't fit. But back in the late 70s, I attended, a, a as I recall it, a two-day seminar, one day with, uh, with uh, Lloyd Weaver and the other day with Cliff in, in Sacramento. I flew down to Sacramento and attended these gentlemen's uh, little session and they really got me interested in odor control fire damage cleanup and uh, water damage restoration well water damage especially I don't know why it just tricked with me it, it clicked with me but it, but it did and that was the start of it and I recall using <laughs> copious amounts of double O and uh, thermal fog, et cetera, on a major hotel, uh, major Spokane courthouse fire, entire city block. And I had several conversations with Cliff during that, and we got through that, and that was uh, kind of satisfying to do. 
and then the water damages. Uh, we always stayed in touch with, with Lloyd, and, and Lloyd's, I'm trying to recall exactly what he said, but I believe he said, if I can do it in Rapid City, South Nowhere, Dakota, you can do it in your city. And that's, that, that's, that was quite memorable. I also remember the influence Cliff had on me. One time I was complaining about what another manufacturer was doing. They were copycatting some equipment, and I was just feeling really discouraged about it. It was in a ballroom at an RIA convention at the time, Ascar, and he said, Ernie, let me give you a piece of advice. Just build it and market the heck out of it. Now, it's obviously edited a little bit, but that's the sum of this. And it stood me well, I think. Uh, I think it has. Well, you know, when you bring up, um, you know, marketing the heck out of it, I guess I'm curious. How did you, you know, most people know, but we'll tell people you've invented this inject-to-drive system is my understanding, and I'm just curious, what, what made you come up with this system? What, you know, what uh, led you to become an inventor, I guess? Well, I think necessity. Uh, I was uh, fumbling around trying to do restoration on, on hardwood flooring. I was trying to do it on underneath sleeper uh, flooring systems. I was trying to dry out walls that had insulation. And I worked a little bit with a gentleman named uh, Terry Smith at the time who came up with the original turbo vent. And uh, he also introduced me to the concept of, hey, more power is better. We tried to, to do it with typical, we'll call them centrifugal, not centrifugal, but uh, uh, the LAMVACs. Uh, we, we tried those LAMVACs, which had a fair amount of CFM and a fair amount of pressure, but the crazy things would burn up every day or two. And so he introduced me to the, the concept of a regenerative or a compressor, rain compressor blower, and that kind of got me started. And we built the first systems out of PVC pipe, and basically we just pumped hot, dry air as, as much as we could into wall assemblies. And that was that was how we start. Basically, got started. Uh, just, now, just vacuum. For- yeah, just I was just Go gonna uh, if you could. I just wanted to clarify what uh, what he's talking about. Lamb is is the Mac is the manufacturer of a blower that's commonly used in vacuum right. cleaners, carpet cleaning equipment, okay. and and stuff like that. I'm sorry. Go ahead, Ernie. Yes, a typical extractor would have a Lamb Amatec type blower, and it's basically going to spin an extremely high RPM. It doesn't it. it the fan blades are not very close to the housing, so it doesn't have the ability to maintain large large amounts of static pressure. And they, uh, although they've refined them with something they call a brushless uh, rotor uh, or a blower, it um, they they're just not terribly suited to long-term industrial type use. So we have a large 38-pound compressor instead of a five-pound what I call a shop vac motor. So and you started with PVC, and now I I was on the website, kind of you know looking around at some photographs, and it looks like things have kind of uh, moved on from there. How are you? You know, can you explain for the listeners a little bit? I, I you know we're on the radio; it's kind of tough to um, envision, but um, you know, it kind of looks like spaghetti spread around the the room in some cases, and I assume it's some kind of maybe. Uh, Oh, I, I like a tubing of, of some type nowadays. How did you go from PVC to the current system? Well, we, we started out with what I would call truck mount hosing and delivered that down to manifolds. First ones were made out of aluminum and not very practical. 
And then we eventually the, uh, landed on a design that would give us 10 ports every seven feet. Uh, ultimately, however, we not only have that, but we also came up with and patented a what we call something uh, called an active hose line. It's basically a hose that acts in the same way as a sprinkler, uh, let's say a soaker hose acts, in that it disperses air either uh, outward or takes air in every eight inches. So we, we like to think that that's an improvement on air distribution, a lot neater, and you can have it go in every uh, every eight inches into a stud cavity. And were these always the same uh, width? I noticed that they're now, what, three-eighths of an inch, essentially? Were they always that width, or they have that changed over the years, too? Well, the first year we came out with it in, oh, uh, boy, that was in... Uh, New Orleans in 1996, we had a 3 8 inch connector, and now we have a, um, for want of another uh, description, uh, let's say a, it takes a whole 3 16th of an inch. That's all it takes to exchange the air in the in the wall cavity approximately every uh, 30 seconds to, uh, to two minutes, depending on how many laser feet you're doing. So that's what we're trying to do is exchange the air within the cavity. Okay. Cliff? Okay. Um... Ernie, over the course of your long and illustrious career in water damage restoration, is there any particular project that stands out, and if so, why? <laughs> long and illustrious. <laughs> well, actually, I, <laughs> I had kind of a syncopated uh, uh, entry into the field. I dabbled a little bit in 1973 and messed the first one up, uh, sewage damage, and it didn't do it properly. Um but illustrious, boy, um, illustrious. I'm, I'm, when I hear the word illustrious, I sometimes think of colorful. And if you, and if you recall a scene in Butch Cassidy's Sundance Kid, where Butch, Butch and Sundance are riding on donkeys up a mountainside in Bolivia, uh, guarding a payroll. You remember that? Yeah. The old, the old gent that was riding, and and guarding with them made a comment about, "I'm being colorful. I'm colorful." And the next moment he was shot. So I, I prefer not to be noticed or too illustrious, if you will. <laughs> you just keep thinking, Butch. You just keep thinking. <laughs> yeah. Good line. But uh, I remember failures. Um, I remember failures because I think that uh, the the words of George Santagnani years and years ago, that if you, um, if you don't learn from history, you fail to recreate or, or repeat history. And and uh, I, I failed to dry a gymnasium one time. I had three gymnasiums within about one or two months that we brought in. They were down in Issaquah, and, and boy, we, we just we just absolutely did a great job. And so when the fourth one came along on day three of the process, I didn't listen to the what you call an interval. You could call it an inner voice, and it it was not quiet. It was not a quiet inner voice. It was loud, and it told me. Stop, son! You're making a problem. I could not. De- the problem was I couldn't determine adequate airflow from one side of the gymnasium to the other. Now, if you're trying to dry something and you don't have air movement that you can demonstrably prove happens between two points, you've got a you've got a problem. And I had it on day one and day two, so I didn't listen to myself. I dried the gymnasium at a large dollar amount. I wanted to cap the bill and guarantee the rest, and, and, and they said, no, go ahead and charge it. So I did, and it failed. And if you've ever 
seeing how they tested a basketball court. You know, they walk around and they dribble a ball, and if the ball doesn't come back, it's a dead spot, kind of like what the uh, Celtics used to have on their home court. And that's what happened, and I learned more from that failure than than, than just about anything I've ever done. So and going back the, now, how would how would you have done that differently, Ernie? I would have I, I would have inspected it and turned it down on day one, because there was a there was a structural component to that system, and it goes back to something that I call TAME. Time, we use that acronym TAME. Time, atmospherials, excuse me, atmospheres, materials, and equipment. If I had done a good job of in, inspecting the M part of TAME, the materials, and I had known and recognized what would happen as I dried it, I would not have dried that job. Hmm. Because because there was insulation beneath the fleet flooring system. It was over a it was over a, um, a, a cafeteria for sound attenuation. They put in insulation and as the insulation dried, and I was drying it, it balled up and restricted the airflow. That was what I should have. That was uh, what I should have. Okay. Bring. How would you? How would? How would you know that? Do you tear up a piece of the floor? Do you cut into it? Or you, did you know there was insulation in there to start with? I didn't know to start with. But again, that is the inspection. Gotcha. And that's. That is the most important part of any restoration project is knowing what the end is in mind in view of all the circumstances, both the structural components, the needs of the customer, the, the dynamics of the atmospheres that you're going to be facing, the outside, the inside, the customer's use. It's a failure to understand all the components. Therefore, it's a failure to devise a proper plan to get to a successful completion. Excellent. Ernie, would you, would you agree if I was to categorize your injected dry system as an aggressive drying system? And I mean aggressive in a good way. We're trying to get dry, warm air to, to where the moisture is. And, and contrasting that with what I would call passive drying, which is what is done in in-place drying, where they generally don't get into wall cavities and you know, would would you agree with that term aggressive versus passive? Well, it it would be more aggressive, absolutely. If you look at a at an air mover blowing against a wall, let's just look at it and just say, okay, we have a standard um, four point seven uh, amp blower blowing against the wall at a, at a forty five degree angle. If you put a manometer, a micro manometer within that wall cavity, you'd find that there is almost no pressure differential, and if you do find any, it's on the order of a tenth of a pascal, which is very, very minute. If you put, however, an injector in there with six, or 30 times or more the pressure of an air mover, and even though it's a very small cubic foot uh, delivery, and it, but it exchanges it every 30 seconds to two minutes, that is an active method of drying, and the approach of blowing at the wall is is almost passive i would say that one or two stud cavities get pressurized differentially under on most wall assemblies and the rest are simply uh getting almost no air movement inside them whatsoever so i i understand i have a hard time seeing how most of these uh restorers who only use that method 
get it dry. And I don't think many of them would want to have our technicians, that is Bale's technicians, following them with a device that would go clear into the bottom of that stud, uh, excuse me, the sole plate at the bottom of the wall, and and do some testing because I think most most many would fail, many would fail, and I know a lot of listeners will not believe that, but um, that's what we find is that we in our market here that we cannot dry most of the homes with simply air circulation. These walls have primer on them. They've got PVA primer on them. That includes interior walls, even though the job doesn't call for it. They don't want to take that PVA out. They're, they've done the exterior walls. They do all the interior walls. That's reduced the permeability factor by quite a bit. Okay, well, let me ask a oh. follow-up question. So would you agree that what's known as in-place, top-down, or vortex drying is overused and overprescribed? Well, let's put it this way. I'm uncomfortable with a lot of situations where there's a fair amount of unfiltered soil uh, filtered soil gets down through the carpet backing, it gets onto the top of the pad, it gets in the pad, and it gets into the subfloor. And when the water hits it, if that house is sit there for 8, 10 years, we've got essentially a significant degree of mud beneath that carpet. And although I can dry it, uh, the question that, always, that, I, that I try to ask first is, should I dry this? It's not can I. We can dry almost anything except the mountains. Uh, we can try. It's not whether or not we can; it's whether or not we should. Now, you know, in-place drying typically refers to leaving most, if not all, of the furniture in place and carpet and all of its padding. In some kind, in some cases, it's absolutely a, a perfectly fine way to do it, and it works. And it works fine. I don't think it necessarily takes any longer because uh, the pad kind of seems to help wick up the moisture out of the subfloor in, in many cases. But I, but I do worry about it, that, that sometimes we're not careful. And another thing that I worry about with the way we dry is the fact that when we start our air movement, we are creating a tremendous amount of contamination or, or lifting it into the air. We've used particle counters on a number of our jobs and on certain types of jobs, we always use them. But you would find an incredible spike in, or a degradation, if you will, of the air quality. And we always have as a mandate, in fact, it's, it's grounds for termination. If you don't put an air movement, excuse me, an air filtration device or a HEPA scrubber on every job, you have to have a reason why and, a, and permission not to, because we are responsible for everything that happens on those jobs. So if you use it, if you use vortex drying or in-place drying carefully with air scrubbing and monitor it, you're going to have less problems than the people who just use it on every job. Okay, that's, that's interesting to me. You mentioned the primer, and you used an acronym there, and the acronym police must have been at the uh, donut shop here. So uh, I think you said PVA. Could you give us the, the full terminology there? Well, do you have a little button or a bell you can ding if I get it right? Uh, yeah, I think we've got some. Oh, maybe not. Right. I, don't know. <laughs> I can clap. <laughs> I believe it stands for polyvinyl acetate. Okay. And of the primers used, they they absolutely are, are designed to change the permeate the porosity of the of the surface of the drywall, and they do change the perm rating significantly. Got it. 
Okay, now you mentioned something else. I'm, I'm kind of, you know, I, I like to be the guy that um, I don't do a lot of disaster restoration. So you bring up really good points, and I want to ask you the, about the sole plate and testing the moisture content in the sole plate. What is it that you're doing differently or what uh, equipment are you using? Because I, I think any drying restoration contractor I talk to will say they do verify that the you know that the materials are dry and that they use their moisture meters etc is there something different i should know about that you're doing that would find that moisture that maybe others aren't doing and they may maybe should know about well the, we use a variety of meters and one of them we we use uh, an awful lot is a survey meter we actually use a, one by a company called gan g-a-double-n out of out of europe and these meters um, are non-destructive yet penetrating. I don't like the term um, non-penetrating because any meter which doesn't penetrate isn't worth um, the, the wrapping, paper wrapping it came in. Uh, they do penetrate. They just don't destruct. Uh, we use that as our first line of measurement. And when those measurements become come into come in line, then we go to uh, longer probes, uh, we've had specialty probes built up that are 10, 12 inches long that go into deep wall assemblies and, and work on insulation. But basically, it's it's checking almost every linear foot. It's it's looking for the trouble spots. It's looking in the corners of uh, rooms because you've got double plating in there, sometimes triple or quadruple plating on corners. And those are almost always, uh, you've probably both seen pictures of, infrared imaging of rooms sure. where what's also i mean what's always the wettest it's the corners of course yep and and even even ruling out the thermal aspect of what's on a corner of an outside building and the wind sweeping around it yeah it's going to be colder even ruling that out the moisture does almost well it does it just goes up at the corners and uh, when in our new school here, that's one of the things we are doing is we're actually drawing a line uh, following the image of the infrared camera to show exactly where that wedding ends, is on the wall. Gotcha. Now, you, I know we have to go to halftime, Cliff, but you give me a second here. I'm enjoying this. So, um, You mentioned the thermal imaging cameras. I noticed on your website you have, uh, you know, you, you talk about how the, Thermal imaging cameras have been, it seems to me anyway, uh, a pretty significant change for the industry. Would you expand on that just a little bit for us before we go to break? Well, I'm not a thermal imaging expert, but every one of our trucks has a an imaging camera. And, of course, they started at 15 grand, and now they're down to five or four or whatever they are. But it is only as good as the operator. It, it has to be used with a um, always affirming and con uh, determining whether or not the reading that you're getting is, is actually water or is it just simply a thermal uh, reflection of a thermal uh, bridging, if you will. It may be cold from the outside. So it, it takes a lot of training and always confirming. And I have seen reports of industrial hygienists. In fact, down at Fort Lewis, we just saw one that uh, – all the surveying was only done with a thermal imaging camera. Well, that's not a standard of care that's defensible. That's not a generally accepted, or and it should be an industry practice. It it just they're survey instruments that say, okay, you look over here, 
look over there. And even if you get a negative, you need to confirm with a more uh, more accurate meter, a meter that's going to tell you something at subsurface as opposed to what's on the surface, which is all a thermal imaging camera does. Excellent. All right, that's what I need. And when we come back from break, I have to ask you about the particle counter because that really got my attention too. Let's okay. Get, uh, so let's thank our sponsors before we go. Uh, before we get back, it's halftime. Our first association sponsor, the Indoor Air Quality Association, a nonprofit multidisciplinary organization dedicated to promoting the exchange of indoor environmental information through education and research. Learn more about them at iaqa.org. And thanks to our advertisers, Gray Wolf Sensing Solutions, who use advanced sensor software technology and embedded computers to provide superior environmental test instrumentation. Visit them at wolfsense.com. ProRestore for cleaning, odor removal, and antimicrobial products remediators trust and depend on. Visit them at prorestoreproducts.com. Legends Environmental Insurance Services, the experts in insurance for environmental consultants and contractors for over 20 years at legends-enviro.com. And, of course, our marquee sponsors. Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IEQ industry. Subscriptions and advertising information are available at ieconnections.com. Dryease Products, providing equipment for drying water-damaged homes and buildings. Dryease is first in drying solutions at dri-eaz.com. John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop at jondon.com. And cleaning, Clean Facts and Cleaning and Maintenance Management Magazine, your source for cleaning and maintenance news. Visit them at cleanfacts.com and cmmonline.com. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IEQ Radio when you inquire about their products and services. All right, let's go back to our second half with Ernie. And if you don't mind, I, I, I got go a quick follow-up, Cliff. Okay, Ernie, you mentioned particle counters, and I, I've got to be honest with you, I've, I've worked with a lot of disaster restoration contractors over the year. I've been years, in the last nine, ten years, and I've been talking about particle counters, showing particle counters in classes, and I don't recall too many, maybe a handful, that owned a particle counter. Now, I'm normally talking about checking your equipment to make sure, for instance, your air scrubber is working as advertised or as it should be. Um, can you go into a little more about how you use your particle counters and, um, uh, you know, what it shows with respect to, I'm assuming, and, you know, actually, let me, let me rephrase it a little bit. When I, when I first heard about the injected dry system many years ago, I thought, you know, I'll bet that may increase the particle load in a home. But now you've explained to me if you use it properly and you have that scrubber in there, you're really monitoring for that as well. Was that part of the reason you started using the particle counters? Sure, and and I don't. I, I'm trying to recall as you mentioned it, just exactly how we got started. I I don't know, but let me just uh, throw a, an, a a specific job at you that that we've used it on that is an example of how it can proactively help you. We had a a man here who who lived in uh, the Medina area. Uh, the house was uh, worth over twenty million dollars. Uh, the man was worth probably fifteen billion. The, uh, he could not live in the house because of air quality issues. He had a musty, moldy smell in the house, and, and one of the things that they discovered was that there was mold behind a very significantly large 
uh, refrigerator slash uh, freezer system in the kitchen. And uh, in addition, we found potted plants throughout the house with a jute-like substance that was perhaps contributing to the problem. But we took care, custody, and control of that kitchen. And I use those words because um, we do, as contractors, assume responsibility for portions, if not all, of the structure. And since this man had to live on his 150-foot yacht because he could not live in his $20 million house, and he was worth billions of dollars, I didn't want to get sued. And so we we went in, and we took air quality readings. We took particulate readings. We we um, in the kitchen we uh, tested for tenth of a micron. Um, uh, we tested for five, uh, half a micron, one micron, five and ten, and we came up with particulate counts. We then put up the containment and set up air scrubbing, and we monitored. Uh, the the particulate count, and it precipitously dropped. I mean, we took control of that house. And this house had five, either four or five separate heating systems. It was a monster house, and uh, each one had a HEPA system, but they were incapable of, of, of dealing with all this mold. It was originating largely from the potted plants and also from behind the refrigerator and the freezer. So during that job, we were able to document, and we kept it under containment. Even after we took the mold, moldy uh, materials out, we took it down to the studs. We uh, just cleaned the pudding out of it and got rid of the mold, and we kept it under containment for six weeks. And during that time, we monitored it, and the air quality kept improving in the house. If I had not done that, and the man had come down with a further respiratory illness, I would not have had the documentation to substantiate what we did as a, an acceptable practice. They're, yeah. they're, they're really reasonably expensive to, to buy. They're not cheap, but I think they're a tremendous tool. Yeah, I think it came up when you were, we were talking about the uh, vortex drying or something like that, and there was some dirt below. Right. But I'll, I'll, uh, I'll double-check. I always listen to the show on Saturday morning because um, – Sometimes I miss things when we're going back and forth here, and I love to listen again. But let me turn it over to Cliff. I just wanted to add a little story, actually. I had purchased a couple of systems from Ernie, and I, my guys were reluctant you know, to use them because they were kind of large, and they had to carry them, and you know, it was something else that had to be used on a truck. And we had a project in a library. It was in a school, and they had bookcases that went all the way up to the ceiling on all the outer walls, plus the inner walls. And what happened is there was a water leak up above, it was a plastered ceiling. And I went out, visited the job, and the equipment wasn't installed. And I asked the guys why it wasn't installed, and they were telling me, well, you know, we didn't want to carry them up, they're heavy, they're this, they're that. So I said, you have two choices, you know, we need to dry the ceiling. Either we're going to take out all the books and bookcases and do it the hard way, <laughs> or we're going to drill some small holes and uh, hook up the injected dry system and do it the easy way. But one of the questions that my guys asked me, Ernie, is, is uh, the question that I'm now going to ask you. He asked me, number one, whether we needed to drill holes on both sides of the ceiling in order to use the injected dry system. Did we need to you know, have one introduction hole and then have another hole to let the moisture in the air out? Do you have to drill a hole on the opposite side? And if you don't, where does this moisture go? 
Sure. Well, when it comes to ceiling cavities, they're a little bit different than wall assemblies. And they may be an interstitial space, but the volume is about four to five times typically. And so we wouldn't use a standard HP system, the high-pressure system. We would actually go up there and drill a slightly larger hole now, put up a corner vent and attach it to an air scrubber and we by something we would call an adapted we call it an adapted dry an adapted dry has a series of concentric rings and fits on the top of air scrubbers and that uh, is attached to uh, that vent is attached to a series of 1 foot 2 foot or, th- or 4 foot vents that can go up in the corner and form a seal well you can drill a 5 8 inch hole or a series of those and get tremendous airflow across that and through that ceiling void um, and that's how we would typically dry them now. We don't use the HP60 anymore for anything more than small ceiling area leaks if we just want real small holes. But other than that, we would we would use another product. We would use the adapter dry. And do you need to put holes on the other side of the uh, ceiling uh, as well? Sure. Of course, the math always is CFM out equals CFM in. But yeah. you need to know, if at all possible, where it's going in. And the way to get it to go in is to go to the other side, put some vents up, and actually pressurize it with like a Vortex uh, air mover or the positive output from a HEPA scrubber, and you've got the best of both worlds. You've got push in, pull out. That's the same way we dry a gymnasium floor. Perfect. You know, speaking, speaking of that, how, can you explain uh, to the listeners how you use the – how you would dry a hardwood floor and, you know, how you're able to pull the moisture out of it? Well, with a hardwood flooring system, let's say a finished flooring system in a house, um, we typically would uh, do an extraction on that floor, an extraction putting our vacuum panels, we call them down there, roughly uh, three foot by four foot panels. And we would actually put those down and uh, connect them with a, with a trunk line, <clears throat> connect it to a truck mount or a, an extractor, and put vacuum pressure on it. And we would get in many cases, we'll get copious amounts of water. We've literally extracted with a truck mount for four hours on flooring systems and, and still had residual moisture coming out if the water ran for a long time. And it, then we would attach them after we got the bulk water out to a system, that uh, to the HP. We tape down the panels. We always say tape because there are only two types of gasketing, those which have leaked and those which will. <laughs> and so, yeah, it's... it's um, all gaskets will leak, and we can get a, a, anywhere from a 10 to a 25% improvement in suction if we tape it down. So we've, we've got a, an HP60 with 10 panels down. We space them apart to where they're on, let's say, half of the wood flooring that's wet, and we would then put a tarp over the top of it, and we would probably introduce either a de, either dehumidified air, uh, LGR, maybe a desiccant dehumidifier, or maybe uh, heat from a... Um, uh, say like a, a Firebird or, an, or an, an, e, an e-test system. Those those are often helpful. Uh, I do caution against using too much heat after the first 24 to 48 hours as uh, that can cause the finish to stress and crack and you can get into checking and, and uh, splitting of boards if you put too much energy onto those uh, materials. And they're, they're fragile materials. And the thing that's keeping them from damaging being damaged immediately is what? Water. It's the water. It's the evaporation, which has, as it happens, it has a cooling effect, and it keeps them under control. But if you dry too fast or too hard, 
you can develop a, an actual crust on the outside and, and actually the moisture that's in the interior of the board then has a problem. It's kind of a hysteristic type effect. A hysteresis is an expression of delay, and it, it just delays it in getting out. So you can dry too aggressively, and about once a month we get pictures in from somebody who split flooring. But judicious use of heat, like uh, uh, the Firebird and, and Jeremy Reitz's uh, test system, is perfectly fine. We often even put dehumidified air into that heated system, so we've got a double punch. Uh, you're, you're using quite a bit of uh, scientific terminology here, and I like that, but I want to ask you a real basic question that relates to that. Do you feel that effective structural drying is more science or more common sense, Ernie? Oh, brother, I don't. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it obviously takes science. It, 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 it does. It, unless we understand what happens with respect to uh, structures that get wet, and uh, we understand our, our tools. But I struggle with the common sense because sometimes we take this common sense and we, we say, well, you know, I'm using a hair dryer and it dries, carp it dries my hair wet and I blow air across a carpet and it dries carpeting. And, and science can't explain that. It, it can, and it makes, it makes sense. But if we try to extrapolate this, this singular experience, these experiences to the world of structural drying, uh, the, the, the analogies fall down a little bit sometimes because things just don't happen uh, as, as fast due to uh, the porosity of materials, the permeability, the, the amount of time things have happened that, that we don't know. But it, yes, it is, it is science. It, it, and sometimes we, we make up stuff, and sometimes we, we actually use the terms incorrectly. For instance, there's been a lot of brouhaha lately about uh, the concept of uh, does air hold water? Does air hold moisture? Well, no, technically it doesn't. But if you go to the IICRC uh, teachings, it says air holds water. Well, it doesn't. But the temperature of the air, and, and we don't work in a vacuum, so let's be reasonable. We work in atmospheres that are composed, comprised of uh, uh, carbon uh, dioxide, hydrogen, helium, oxygen. And, and quite frankly, uh, it's the temperature of that gas that is directly related to how much moisture will stay in suspension. That's what it really is. And if there's one thing that we can correct in the future with the IICRC, it's a, finding a better way to express some of these terms. And, uh, but as far as common sense goes, you've got to be careful because just cause, because something worked one time doesn't mean it will another. Remember my TAME, T-A-M-E. Maybe one of the materials is different. Maybe instead of being a concrete board beneath marble, we have a hardy board. Wow. And if it really got wet, we might not be able to dry it. We might take it out. There you go. So what I'd say is we take our, we take our technicians and put them through the, the science. Now, science tends, tends to have specific answers, and, and you could almost call them pat answers, um, Dalton's formula being one. And, and you, But we bring these people back and we teach them how to practice that in an artful form. 
So we don't have the pat scientific answers. We have artful answers. So all of our technicians who come back are now named Art 1, Art 2, and Art 3. We practice the art trying scientifically. Does that make sense? And the Spanish students would be named Jose, Jose B, and Jose. (laughs) Yeah, we've got a Felipe, and he's a great guy. (laughs) uh, No, that that does make sense. I like that. Now, you you mentioned um, the IICRC, and I'm curious about your uh, thoughts on the the uh, prescriptive nature of the S-500 water damage standard? Mm. Well, that's a can of worms. And, and, and I would probably be more reserved than most, and today I find myself in the position of being back on a standards review committee for the, um, for the second time. And having been a past editor, I know, and on committees for years, I recognize that it's, it's, it's difficult to come up with what is known as widely a, a consensus document. And as consensuses are, they tend to be what in nature? A compromise, if you will. Mm-hmm. And as such, but, but the, they're, they're, they have that problem. But one thing that, that, that can get corrected are the inconsistencies. For instance, um, in, in one section of the standards, it refers to gray water, which is Category 2 water, as being salvageable. In another, it says it should it should come out. Well, now, which is it? Which side of the, your mouth are you talking? It almost puts us in the same, well, it does, in the same position, and untenably so, of the politicians. You say one thing one, one week and another thing another. It's, it's, um, it's difficult. The prescriptive nature of it, um, I think you said, you know, it tends to lead to a simplistic approaches to drawing, for instance, okay, since I can put an air mover every 10 feet, I'm going to. It may not be efficacious. It may not be cost-effective to the insurer or the customer, but the standards say I can do it. Therefore, I'm going to do it. They don't pay me for something else, so this is how I'll get my money. That's unfortunately human nature. You know, speaking of money, um, what's your comment on the – allowable daily rental rates for different types of, of equipment. You know, for instance, do you think that um, the, the, the rental rate allowed for air movers is too high while the rental rate allowed for dehumidification and specialized systems such as injected dry might be too low? Any comment? Well, I suppose so. Uh, <laughs> the, the rental rates for an air mover, I wouldn't say are too high. But they could be in aggregate too high or too great a dollar amount for how many are used and how for how long that they're used. The the HP60, <clears throat> excuse me, and like simpler and similar pressure systems are are absolutely not high enough. In fact, they're the same rate that they were 15 years ago. And what happened was we we when we first came out, we were the standard of the industry. In fact, the H- Xactimate said HP60 or equivalent. Mm-hmm. Well, there's never been an equivalent. Right. And at all pressure levels, we're anywhere from 25 to, to 75% or even more, more effective than the, the nearest competitor. Yet the, our prices are that the people who buy our systems are predicated on the lowest priced uh, systems and least pre- uh, capable systems out there. So that's one of our goals next year is to rectify this inconsistency. And quite frankly, the problem is that exact to me, 
wants feedback from restorers. What are the questions that they ask you? They ask you what's your what's your charging? What you're charging has to be what Xactimate says. Now tell me how you get out of that Groundhog Day loop. <laughs> say me say me how you get out of it. You don't. That's a tough one there. That's a that's a tough. Before we um, go to uh, we go to we're gonna have to go to our roundup in a second. Before we do, um, we were on the S five hundred for a moment, and I thought I heard you say that. Uh, are you back on the committee? Is that going back out for um, rewrite at this point? Do you, are you familiar with that? Well, I, I just got the documents this week and signed them and got got them back. Uh, the chapter I'm going to be looking at is with Larry Carlson and others is tools and, and, uh, I think the structural approach, it, I, I think they're doing a minor review and now just what this, what's in, will be entailed with respect to peer review. I don't know, but it is an ANSI document. So we have to be very careful and, and we're, the, our course of action is very proscribed if you will. And so I, I don't know the full procedure. I just, Reluctantly, reluctantly agreed to do it. Okay. Well, thank you for that, and uh, we'll keep we'll keep listeners posted on how that's coming along. I know we're we're trying to get the president, I believe, uh, to to join us, and he's agreed to join us in a, on a future show. Right, uh, Ernie. Where do you get the ideas for ongoing product improvement to your system? Well, I would say that the biggest uh, source of that is the day-to-day operate or the day-to-day operations of our restoration company. We we run across a, a flooring system uh, and or a wall assembly that doesn't nothing we have works. So that day in the shop, we make things up and take them out that day or the next day and and try them. And sometimes they make it the new products. And, that, and actually, products that I used as long as 10 years ago were, were reintroducing because we found a way to make them more usable and more friendly. Uh, be, and and the, the tough part is, Cliff, is teaching the, their, adic- their appropriate use. And that, therefore, to that end, we're doing a better job. We're redoing all of our manuals, and we will be doing videos and I've been hounded by Joey Pickett and Bob Bonwell for years and years to do this. Ernie, just do it, just do it. Doesn't have to be perfect. That's what we're going to try to do is communicate the use of these specialty tools because it's not just the tools themselves. You put a hammer in the hands of of, of somebody who's unskilled, and he'll destroy a house. Other or he could build a a very uh, ornate and nice and complex structure. So it's training the people how to use the tools. Okay. Hang on, Ernie. Just hang on. We're going to go to the roundup. We're going to round one more time and bring Dr. Wow in to uh, say hello and see if he has any comments or questions. Okay, let's see if we have our friend Dr. Dietrich Wow on the line. Hello, Dieter. Are you are you with us? I certainly am. Can you hear me? We can hear you well. Any questions or comments, Dieter? 
Oh my God! Uh, how much time do we? Have? <laughs> <laughs> We're running low. Normally, you don't have a lot on the restoration shows, but I had a funny feeling. Well, you picked no, the no, uh, I know nothing about restoration. <laughs> but Ernie made, I think, some wonderful, wonderful points here. And there are certain things in life where it is helpful if you know the basics and you know what the science is all about why we are doing this and that and the other. And he mentioned that one. I said, you know, you, you got to know what a psychrometric chart is. Um, he mentioned in the very beginning, I made a bunch of notes over here. Yeah. You know, with that static pressure of in, of an air mover. And people think if I get a hell of a lot of uh, air into this house, um, uh, I have a lot of a static pressure, which is absolutely wrong. It doesn't work that way. <laughs> and it has something to do with the blade and the blade design in a blower. You can buy a blower for 1995, a 20-inch fan, and uh, that, one will, that, that one will not develop uh, half a pascal of uh, static pressure. So that, that is great. That is great uh, that he mentioned that, and you got to know that. The other thing is, and uh, he also said, with drying. I explained it to my students, and Joe knows this one. When you're thinking about drying, the first thing is, if you don't, if you don't have any science background, think of your dryer, your washer and your dryer, your dryer. What do you do? You put in heat, and what do you do with the air? You throw it out. You heated it, but you got to throw it out. If you don't have air movement, Forget it. It doesn't work. That is wonderful. I think uh, two other things uh, uh, which uh, Ernie mentioned is you know, the particle counter and the infrared uh, imaging uh, camera. Two wonderful tools in your toolbox. Absolutely gorgeous to have those. Comma, however, comma, that's not all <laughs> that you need to find out about the problem. The other thing is, which I liked, and I have been trying to teach this to a lot of people, um, uh, that Q in got to be equal to Q out. In the old days, I designed ventilation systems, industrial ventilation systems for, for grinders and, and stuff like that. And I said, okay, guys, now we have whatever, 8,000 CFM cubic feet per minute going out. Now we got to bring it in. I said, oh, we don't have money for that. I said, well, guys, we got to bring it in, and we got to bring it in intelligently, not through nooks and crannies. And the other thing, and I like that one, what Ernie said, yeah, with that, with that water, uh, you know, there's category one, two, and three. For me, there is only one category, and this, I guess, is not a consensus. <laughs> For me, there's only one category, black water. If it's on the floor, I don't give a damn where it comes from. <laughs> That is black water to me. I don't drink the water when it rains on my relatively clean porch. I guess that would be category one. So I think there were a bunch of very, very, very good points made over here that you have to understand, and it is not bad even if you are, quote, only a technician, and I have nothing against technicians whatsoever. Yeah, you got to know a little bit uh, about the background, the science. Why do we do this? Where does it come from? And by the way, I also know the answer to today's uh, trivia uh, question. 
And if there's any student of mine listening who doesn't know the answer, we take away the certificate. <laughs> <laughs> well, somebody somebody texted it, it in, yep. so I'm not sure whether he was one of your students or not, we but it, it took it. a couple tries. Yep, we got it, Dave. <laughs> well, hey, thanks again for joining us. It's always a pleasure. And uh, Oh, it, it's always a pleasure to be here. And I made, I made another, oh, where did I write it down? Over here. I still do not believe that this is so number 179 yes sir yeah. over four that years and i i cannot believe it i think i i i still think that we started that a half a year ago <laughs> it's unbelievable well, thanks again Dieter. we'll talk to you next week sure pleasure Kearney, uh what was the funniest or most humorous thing that you can recall over the course of your career in disaster restoration well, I suppose, boy, um, difficult to say. There, there may be one thing that if you're a cat lover, you might not like. Uh, I actually wrote about it in an article I, that John Dampney published in Clean Facts years ago called I Learned About uh, Water Damage Restoration from This. I, I did a water damage restoration in a house, and it was in a basement, and I, uh, in the course of uh, – doing the work, I, the last thing I sprayed on it was a liquid, that I won't need the brand name, but I'll say it's a liquid tin malleate at the time, and um, I cautioned the homeowner. I said, "No, nobody walk on that with bare feet and no pets. Well, out of the corner of my eye, I saw a cat walk across the room and trip nicely across the carpet, walked across the carpet shaking his paws within uh, seconds it was licking its paws and within hours it was dead now now that may not seem funny but that poor lady I bought her another cat by the way and I had I flew I flew the cat up I, I I put it in dry ice and I flew it up to Montreal for a for a, a thorough autopsy and and get they didn't guess what they didn't find any liquid any liquid tin malleate but a week later I I went to uh, I applied it on the carpeting and the walls of a karate studio. And the, the same thing happened. Only kids were crying and their, bur their feet were burning. And the only way to get rid of it was to clean the carpets. And I know for a fact this stuff would burn your skin. And uh, today it's not marketed. But that's the danger of some of these compounds that we use, these chemical agents. It's, and, and in retrospect, it was a little bit humorous. The lady got a new cat. And I learned about water damage restoration from that. But other than that, I don't know about humorous. It's uh, it's it's t most of these are, are tragic situations, and it's and it is hard to find any kind of humor in them. Ernie, before we go, um, we've got two more. One quick one from me. Um, you know, I deal with a lot of indoor environmental professionals, people who do consulting as opposed to the contracting end of things. Um, from this interview or anything else that. Uh, you've come across over your many years in the industry. What would you like to see IEPs take away from uh, your here your opportunity here to uh, get out the word on IAQ Radio? Well, begin at the beginning, and that goes back to that team. That goes back to knowing everything that you can possibly know, and even understanding what you don't truly know, at, so that you can know as much as you can about how long that water ran in direct contact or how long that moisture was reputed to be building up in this uh, attic space. 
and, and how long has sat since then? Uh, know all your materials. I can tell you that 99 out of 100 contractors who call for advice do not know the materials that they're dealing with. They may know the top layer. They may know the bottom layer. They may know the two, the top and the bottom. But do they know the three or four or seven or eight layers that are embodied in that flooring system? Almost never. So materials. And then knowing what your atmospheres are. What are your atmospheres in your interstitial spaces? What are the atmospheres into in, in the crawl space that are going to come into the house because you're putting negative pressure on that flooring system if you're trying for, with panels, for instance? What are And if you know that the time and the atmospheres and the materials, then you can pick the equipment and the techniques. It's a, it's a logical, a, I call it a didactic or systematic planned way of uh, thinking about each and every job so you have predictability. Uh-oh. Seems like we lost Ernie, but, uh, you know, yep, it sounds like we lost Ernie. And all we had left to ask was if there was anything he'd like to add. So uh, I guess at this point we're going to have to sign off and thank. Well, I think think what we can do is if you want to learn more about uh, Ernie's company, the website is injectthedry.com. And his office phone number is 425-822-3851. Okay. And, uh, Welcome I to th- Talk Shoe. I think Please enter the call ID followed by the pound key. Altogether. So okay. we're going to have to thank our listeners. You may access listeners. the call up to 15 minutes. All right. It looks like we're back on, but um, we may have lost Ernie. I just want to wrap it up here at this point. We were right at the end anyway. Uh, for next week, we're working on a show that will be announced about midweek. I think we'll get the announcements out a little sooner uh, when we have things finalized. But all I can say is it will be interesting. Very interesting. Um, I want to thank our, um, our, our guest today, Ernie Storr, for uh, what, what I thought was a great show. I also want to thank my co-host, the Z-Man, Cliff Slotnick, um, Environmental Annie, and Koalecki at the controls over there. Dr. Dietrich Weil for joining us, our technical director. But most importantly, you, our growing group of loyal listeners, please come back and join us next Friday at noon for the next broadcast of IAQ Radio. This has been another IAQ Radio production.